right, 1 Peter chapter 1, let's talk about resurrection hope. And here's where we have to start on this text. Suffering and stress, suffering and stress will tempt you to take the easy way out. Uh, It generally tempts us to take the easy way out of anything. Now, when I think about this idea that pressure tempts us to kind of move in the wrong direction or take the easy way out, I'm brought back to when I lived in South Carolina, and I had a certain running route that I would take when I would take like a jog from my house. It was the perfect distance for me, and it would go through an old subdivision. Now, around us were a bunch of new subdivisions, so all the plants were small and uh, the, the grasses were you know, just brown and just getting their green. So I like to run through the old subdivisions where the trees are big and the curbs are kind of chipped up a little bit. Just feel like it's been there for a while. And there's one in particular that I love to run through. The problem with this subdivision is it had a really big hill. I mean, a really, really big hill. This is fish story coming, right? <laughs> on a cold day or on a fall day, that really wasn't a big deal. I'd say to myself, I'm going to run the entire three miles And I would, you know, go all the way up to the top of the hill. And and it was tough to get up, but it wasn't that bad. But as you know, in the south and in here in Connecticut, you can get up to like 99, 100 degrees on those summer days. And there are times that I would go out ready to run in the summer. And I would say to myself, I'm going to complete this. I'm going to go all the way. Uh, And and as I hit the bottom of that hill, I would start to to feel, you know, I'm starting to suck wind a little bit more. Uh, I'm getting tired. My legs are getting a little bit lazy here as I run. And here's the problem. About halfway up that hill was a shortcut away from the hill. So you could go up and you could cut off what might be about an eighth of a mile, but it was the toughest eighth of the mile on that run. And every hot day, the same thing would happen. I'd start off with really good intentions to finish this route. And at the bottom of the hill, I'd start to feel the aches and the pains. And, you know, as I got closer and closer to that road, it became more attractive. And, 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 and I'm tempted to take the easy way out. Sometimes I would take it, and sometimes I wouldn't. But the same thing can happen to us spiritually. Sometimes you're going through life. You have these commitments you've made to God. You want to keep those commitments. But there's pressure and there's stress. You grow weary, you grow tired, and you're tempted to take the easy way out. Consider, for example, Mark. Mark, for the first part of the pandemic, did not have a very hard time finding work. Work was just coming in. In fact, it came in at a rapid pace. He was on the front end of technology, so he was a leader there in his community, and everybody wanted a piece of him, and he could take care of his family. Everything was good. But the last couple of months have been really tough for Mark. The work is drying up. He's operating at about a third of the clients that he once had. And now what's going through Mark's mind is maybe I should take the easy way out. He's made these commitments to God. He's never thought about stealing. He's never thought about cutting corners on his clients. Never thought about cheating on his taxes or anything like that. But the stress and the pressure are causing him, tempting him to think about what would be the easy way out. Maybe I can fudge a few numbers. Maybe I can put a few extra charges in here that the clients won't even see. Stress and pressure cause us to take the easy way out. Consider Lori. You know, life has been tough on Lori, but she's been okay. She has an autoimmune disease. And what's happened during the pandemic is because of her autoimmune disease and things are shut down, she can't see the specialist. And so her symptoms are getting worse and worse. Her job is especially wearing on her. She has to sit in that chair all day. It's physically and emotionally draining. 
and she's beginning to feel like God doesn't care. Just keeping her faith intact is becoming a very difficult thing for Lori to do. And the easiest thing for Lori to do is just quit in her relationship with God and take the easy way out and just do whatever comes to her mind. Stress and pressure tempt us to take the easy way out. Mark has his struggles, Lori has hers, I have mine, and you have yours. And by the way, it probably has already occurred to us that we're not the first ones that this has happened to. I think about in the Old Testament where Abraham and Sarah become weary with the, with the plan of God coming to pass. And so they concoct a scheme and bring Hagar into it. They use her, in essence. What are they doing? They're taking the easy way out. When Israel's in the wilderness, I mean, when they left Egypt, there was a commitment. We're going to make it to the promised land. We're going to cross the river. We're going to do everything we have to do to get into the land that God has given us. But it's getting tough, and they're getting hungry, and there's opposition along the way. And so what do they start saying? Let's go back to Egypt where things were good. They want to take the easy way out. Stress and pressure cause us to take the easy way out. They tempt us to take the easy way out. This is Peter's audience, and if you can understand this principle of pressure tempting us to quit on God, you can understand the book of 1 Peter, because that's what it's all about. Peter's audience is this. First of all, we're told in verse 1, they're scattered abroad. Now, we don't know what scattered means, but historians have a pretty good idea of what they think it means. It's very possible that these are the refugees that were kicked out of Rome. Uh, The emperor Claudius came into Rome there in the first century, and there were these riots that took place kind of in the Christian districts there, among the Jewish people too, and all these people were expelled. Jews and Christians were expelled from Rome all at once. You're talking like 25,000 people just kicked out overnight. And they settled into these areas like Bithynia, where Peter is writing. So when Peter says these are tribes that are scattered, He's making an echo from the Old Testament, but it's even more than that. It's historically grounded. Literally, these are people that are probably just out on their own. And there they are, kind of 50 of them, maybe huddled together. We're told that they have all kinds of grief, verse 1 of chapter 6. There's malicious talk against them. And chapter 4 tells us they're being blamed for not participating in the culture. Now, you have to understand what this means. In the Roman world... When you don't participate in the worship, you get blamed for everything. Because the worship is tied to the events in the world. In other words, the way you keep hurricanes from coming is through where you worship the gods and they back the nature off. The economy, the job that you have, whether it be making shoes or whether it be putting pottery together, when the economy dries up, it's because the people didn't do enough worship. The gods control everything and the worship is connected to that. So here's what happens. A natural disaster takes place in the community, and who do you think gets blamed? All the people that didn't go and worship in the temple, that's the Christians. When people don't have jobs anymore, what happens? They blame the Christians because the Christians aren't participating in the worship. And so the Christians here that Peter is writing to, they're not just scattered abroad. They're getting blamed for every calamity that's taking place in their community. And so they are tempted to take the easy way out. All kinds of pressure and stress. They want to quit on God. And that's where verse 3 comes in. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now here's the point Peter's making. We're going to unpack this here. Peter is saying 
that the resurrection, if we understand it, it will help us persevere in the will of God. The resurrection gives us strength to take one step in front of the other, in front of the other, in front of the other. It helps us persevere in the will of God. And here's why. Let me give you four truths that Peter gives us here in 1 Peter chapter 1. Here's the first one. You may feel poor, but your future is secure. You may feel poor, but your future is secure. Now, I'm going to do something that is very unbecoming of a pastor. And it's very unbecoming of a pastor, especially from the pulpit on Easter morning. I'm going to financially out someone today. Because I learned this week, just this week, that there is someone in our community that has come into a whole lot of wealth. They don't have that wealth yet. It's in trust. But it's a lot of wealth. And I know this person well enough to know that this is true with them. And I don't want to out them in front of the whole community, but I think I'm going to do it this morning on live stream and before a congregation. Worse, this individual actually has eyes on me right now. Now, who is this? It's you. And it's me. Because Peter says, we've come into an inheritance through the resurrection. Though you may feel poor, your future is secure. And if you're a Christian, that's you. We have an inheritance from Jesus Christ our Lord. Now notice three things about the inheritance in this passage. First of all, the inheritance is going to be a surprise. When it says living hope, that word hope, that word hope implies that you don't have it yet, but someday you're going to. Now we have to understand that in the ancient world, this is how it worked in the ancient world. What you had in this life is going to be a reflection of the life to come. So if you have money in this life, you're going to have money in the life to come. That's what the Roman world believed. If you have poverty in this life, you're going to have poverty to come. If you have sickness in your life, you have sickness in the life to come. This life is simply a reflection of the life to come. That's why Luke 16 is such a shock to people. You have the rich man and Lazarus, right? The rich man is someone who has everything in this life, but he ends up in Luke 16 in hell. Lazarus is sore at the gate. He's about to die. The dogs are licking his wounds, and he ends up in Abraham's bosom. See, Christianity is a role reversal. In the Roman system, they taught that whatever you had in this life is simply a reflection of the next, but Jesus tells us here through the resurrection, Peter, through Christ, that it's a role reversal. That which you have in this life is not a reflection on what you have in eternity. That's what the word hope implies. Hope implies that the situation is going to change. And we know as Christians that we follow the example of Jesus. What do I mean by that? In Jesus, what he had in this life was misery. But in the resurrection, he was raised to glory. And so the apostles teach us that as Christians, we follow the same pattern. What we have in this life very well could be misery and suffering. It could be poverty, but our future is secure like Jesus. Christians follow the example of the gospel, suffering, then glory. What happens to you in this life is not a reflection of what happens to you in the future. One of the great metaphors, I don't know if you've thought of it this way, but one of the great metaphors for what happens now does not happen later is the book of Job. Job is kind of a metaphor of the resurrection. Job loses everything in the first half of the book, and then everything is regained in double in the second half. 
The same is true with the resurrection. The grief we may have in this life gives way to the glory to come. There's a role reversal. Not only is your, your inheritance secure, uh, uh, surprise rather, but our inheritance is secured. It's secured. I'm going to read verse 4. Our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Again, back to the ancient world. If you had an investment or an inheritance, there are three ways you could lose it. Number one, it could rot. Now, why would your inheritance rot? Today, your inheritance would probably not rot, but it could back then. And that's because oftentimes inheritance was in something like the form of clothes. I mean, clothes were a big commodity in the first century. What they would do is pile up clothes. They'd put them in the attic. You could sell those later, especially things that were kind of weaved in with a little bit of purple. And so clothes. But remember when Jesus says that lay up your treasure in heaven because here moths can corrupt it? He's talking about clothing there. Clothing was so valuable in the first century that when Jesus died on the cross, that bloody, ripped-up clothing he had, what did the soldiers do? They cast lots so each of them could take a piece home. You'd never find anybody doing that today, but the soldiers did it then because clothing was that valuable, but clothing can rot. Number two, it can stain. It can ruin. Think about the rug, the antique rug where you spill something on it and it ruins and it's not worth what it used to be worth. But most of all, things can depreciate. Things can depreciate. I read this this week about hyperinflation where something is worth something one day, but worth almost uh, nothing the next day. You know, in 1914, the German mark compared to the American dollar was about four to one. So for one American dollar, four German marks. Nine years later, you know what the ratio was? One dollar to four trillion German marks. Think about losing your wealth overnight. If you Google pictures, don't do it now, but if you Google pictures... You can find little kids and families burning German marks because it was cheaper to burn the money than go buy firewood. Economists estimate that when the inflation took place in Hungary in 1946, it reached 41 quadrillion percent in one month. Everything was doubling every 15 hours. So what it costs you for a loaf of bread now in 15 hours is going to cost you double. Then in 15 hours, it's double that. When I was a kid, there were stocks that were too big to fail. I mean, I remember my grandparents saying, buy GE, you know, buy Kodak. You know, Kodak once had 120,000 employees. They have less than like 5,000 employees today. They were like the staple, you know, on the Dow Jones. Then they were kicked down to the S&P. They're not even on the S&P anymore. If you own Kodak stock and you feel like that was a secure investment today, you're broke. Because things depreciate. Now notice what Peter says. They can rot, they can ruin, they can depreciate. Peter gives three antithetical ideas. Our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It never depreciates. It is fully secure. There's a great quote by Jim Elliott. I've quoted it many times. I love it. The missionary to South America that said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We don't have time to look at this this morning. But Peter, later in the chapter, talks about all the things that are going to fade away. What he does here, for example, verse one, uh, 7, he talks about your money is going to perish. Your very person is going to perish in verse 23. And again in verse 23, even your achievements will perish. 
All that reminds us of the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. You know, that word vanity means here today, gone tomorrow. It's like, it's like breathing. You know, you, you go outside on a cold day, you breathe, and then all it kind of goes away. Or smoke goes up and it goes away. Peter is saying that everything you have in this life someday is going to be gone. But everything you have in Christ someday, you're going to secure. You may feel poor, but your future is secure. Last thought on this point. Not only is is it a surprise and not only is it secure, it is absolutely certain. And that's because of verse 5. Who by God's power, it is guarded through faith for a salvation. In fact, it told us in verse 3 that we have this resurrection hope according to his great mercy. See, here's what some people might be thinking. And you might be thinking what Peter's readers are thinking. You might be thinking that, okay, the inheritance is secure, but what if I'm not worthy of it? But what if I don't live up to my expectations that are on me? And that's the modern Western narrative. That's the narrative of the religious world, that I only get my inheritance if I'm a good enough person. You watch The Good Place? What is that, on Netflix or something? The Good Place? It's kind of funny, you know? Uh, The Good Place is about, you know, it's a parody on heaven and hell and things like that, and uh, it's a, in order to get to the good place, it's a highly selective place for those that live good lives. And the reason people chuckle at that is because that's exactly what everybody in our world today believes. If I'm good enough, I'll get to heaven. If I'm good enough, I'll secure my inheritance. We're told here that the inheritance we have, I want you to get the language, is according to the mercy of God. That means this. That means the inheritance we have is in harmony with the mercy of God. Dogs bark because they're dogs. Cats meow because they're cats. Birds fly because they're birds. God is gracious because he's God. In other words, that inheritance that we have coming, that security, is not because we're good people. It's because God is a gracious God. Number two is this. You may feel poor, but your future is secure. Number two, you may experience loss, but suffering is temporary. Listen carefully to verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the praise and glory and honor and revelation of Jesus Christ. So there's a lot to say in here. Let me just tease out a couple thoughts that might help us this morning. First of all, I want you to notice that the apostles, when it comes, when it comes to suffering in this life, there are common moves that people make that we're never told to make. Number one, sometimes people minimize their problems. You have a real financial problem, or somebody's on their deathbed, Or maybe there's a terrible problem in your family or in your relationship with your spouse, and you minimize it. Oh, it's not that bad. It's not a big deal. I've had people that are moments away from passing away that will look at me and say, Dad, this isn't a big deal, (laughs) you know? It's a pretty big deal, what's happening. We are never told to minimize our problems in this life. Because you come to Jesus, that doesn't mean your problems all go away. Number two, a lot of people will simply wish those problems away. We say things like, you know, someday this will get better. 
Well, let me say that I'm very thankful that usually problems do get better. I mean, listen, if if most of your problems did not go away, you'd have more problems than you could possibly handle. Thankfully, most of them do go away, but not all of them go away. Sometimes they follow you everywhere you go, depending on the nature of that problem. We are never told to take the mindset that, well, my problems will just go away. We're also never told just to grit our teeth and kind of be cynical or stoicism or get self-pity or say that's just the way the cookie crumbles. So we never trivialize our problems that way. But there are two things that are true in this passage about our problems. And the resurrection breaks through our suffering in this way. Number one, suffering is on a short leash. Suffering is temporary. I want you to get the language here in verse 6. In this you rejoice, though for a little while, if necessary. Peter is not saying that for a little while your problems are going to be here and then they're going to go away. He's saying that when you go to be with Christ, those problems are no longer with you. And so our our suffering is temporary. The, The worst thing that can happen to you in this life is you suffer, but you can't lose the inheritance you have in Jesus. They're short. They're a little while. I used to have a professor in seminary. He would say this. Remember, you know that phrase in Scripture, this too shall pass? Peter is saying, this too shall pass. And my professor, before a test, used to say, this too shall pass. I did not say you will pass. I said, this too shall pass. And and every time I read this passage, I think of that. This is going to pass. The poverty is going to pass. The backache is going to pass. The broken relationship with your child, the broken relationship with your parent, the way people may, you know, marginalize you, all that is going to pass. It's for a little while, Peter says. And then we see Christ. We suffer with him that we may be glorified with him. I love those Sports Illustrated flashbacks uh, where they go back and talk about something that happened in history. My favorite one is from 1976. It's the Olympics, Shun Fujimoto. Fujimoto was considered one of the greatest Olympians of all time. And Fujimoto was doing a floor routine when his knee went hollow. He broke his knee in the middle of the routine. Somehow, he finished the floor routine. And he realized that if he disclosed this injury, he'd be disqualified, his team would lose, and the Soviets would, by default, win. So he had to get through two more events with a broken knee. The next one would be the pommel horse. Now, the pummel horse is a lot of upper body, but it's not all upper body. You still have to dismount. You still have to put your knee right up in the air. Fujimoto was in pain through the entire pummel horse routine. It was so intense. But he scored an incredible 9.5 out of 10, one of the higher scores that he received. The final event is going to be the rings. And Shun Fujimoto knows that Again, much of it's upper body, but there's no way you can dismount from the rings, land on a broken knee. Fujimoto somehow made it through his routine. He flung his 136-pound body up into the air, flipped around, and when he landed, his knee only slightly buckled. He said when he landed on the broken knee, it felt like a knife went into his leg. He held on, he balanced for the required few seconds, and then he collapsed in pain. The Olympic doctor said how he managed to do somersaults and twists and land on that knee without collapsing in screams is beyond my comprehension. Shun Fujimoto receives a 9.7, the highest score he would ever record on the rings. He walked away with a gold medal. Japan won 
the closest male gymnastics at that time over the Soviets in the history of the Olympics. After, months later, Fujimoto was interviewed. He said, the pain shot through me like a knife. It brought tears to my eyes. But now I have a gold medal and the pain is gone. (laughs) Peter is saying the same thing. The suffering you have in this life, it's real. Boy, when you feel it, it feels like a knife goes into your leg at times. But there's going to be a day when you're going to be face to face with Jesus. And because of the resurrection, you're going to say, the pain is gone, and now I have a gold medal. The present suffering doesn't compare to the eternal glory. I want to give you one last thought in this passage. In verse 7, suffering has a purpose. Now, I don't think this hits us the way it should, so I'm going to read it again. The tested genuineness of your faith. So, so the trials are a test for us, all the more precious than gold that perishes. In other words, the trials that will refine your faith, that's worth more than all your money. That's worth more than all your family's money. That's worth more than all the money in Ridgefield. If we could take all the money in Connecticut and put it in your bank account, The genuineness of your faith is more valuable than that. Why? Once again, because all that money someday is going to perish, but your faith is going to be around forever. And then he goes on to say that our faith may be found to the praise and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, the way you and I respond to trials in this life is going to bring a measure of glory and praise to God in eternity that we can't even comprehend at this moment. Now, if you're like me, you're saying, that really doesn't help me that much. And I would say that's because we don't really understand what it means. So let me do my best here to try to communicate what this means. You and I are not so thrilled about the idea of God getting glory in heaven because probably we're not in the right relationship with God in this world that we should be. So I want you to think about something. I want you to think about that time. Maybe you have to imagine this. Maybe it happened. When your child receives some special praise. Think about when you walked down the hallways of your school and you looked on the board and it was a little star and your child's picture was there. They were recognizing your child for something special. And, and be honest, your heart leapt a little. And you, you didn't mean to do it, but you're like, have you guys seen this board over here? You know, you found a way to direct parents over there so they could see your child's star. It's okay, you know. Think about the time when your child scored the game-winning goal. Or think about when your best friend received an award and you were in the crowd and you got to applaud with everybody. You felt something special because you were connected to that person. I want you to take the feeling that you had at that moment, how excited you were that somebody was receiving praise, multiply it times a million, and that's how you're going to feel when God gets praise for the faith that you have. There is such an immeasurable joy that you and I are going to have when Jesus receives all the glory for your faithfulness in this life. That what you felt for your child at the most proud moment is going to pale in significance to what you feel there at the moment when you look at Jesus and he gets all the glory for what he's done in your life. All right, number three, we're going to move quick. Well, you may feel poor, but your future is secure. You're going to experience loss, but it's temporary. Number three, you may not sense him, but he is there. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And you rejoice with joy, inexpressible, filled with joy. 
filled with glory rather. What does this mean? It almost feels like these verses are out of place. Like, like Peter's looking at the people going, though you don't see God, you know, you love him. That doesn't make any sense in this passage, or does it? I'll tell you why it makes sense. Because when you go through trials, you start to feel like God is not there. You, you can't see him. And therefore, you almost question your love for God. And maybe you question his love for you. One of the great things about a family, I've been married for 20 plus years. And, you know, in my family, like any other family, we go through trials. We go through hard times. One of the great things about being married, you know, 20 plus years is my wife is there. I mean, literally, she's there. Like, she could hit me with a paper airplane, you know. She can say, get in the car, let's go for a ride. Or you can have a meal together and talk to each other. Physically, you could reach out. and You know when someone is there going through a trial with you. Maybe you have a friend, and that friend went through a terrible time, and you sat down and you literally held their hand and prayed with them. They could feel your hand, and they could feel that you were with them there in the trial. The hard thing about God is you can't see him. And a lot of times you can't sense him. And you go through a hard time, and you're wondering, where is God? I don't feel like he's present in this moment. That's the music in the background of this passage. The people are going through a terrible trial, A lot is happening, and they feel like God is not there. And you start to question the relationship with God. And Peter says, though you do not see him, you love him. So let me give you two quick thoughts on this. First of all, if you don't sense the presence of God when you're going through a trial, I'm going to shock you, I think. Welcome to the club. Because a lot of people don't. That's why we walk by faith. And not by sight. Now I can tell you as a Christian and as a pastor, there's a lot of times I go through a trial and I, goodness, God is as real to me as if somebody's sitting right next to me. There are other times I feel incredibly alone. I have no idea why I don't sense the presence of God. And I start to question my love for him and his love for me. And Peter looks at people like me in that moment and says, though you do not see him, you love him. I want you to know that your religious experience in this life is not a reflection on whether or not God is with you. Your religious experience in this life is not a reflection on your relationship with God. Peter says, whether or not you think God is there, he is there. And he walks with us through trial. Last one here. You may, not, you may feel poor, but you're pretty rich. You may experience loss, but the suffering is temporary. You may not sense them, but I want you to know God is there. You may feel marginalized, but you are incredibly privileged. I love these last verses. They tell us concerning this salvation. So Peter's about to unpack the salvation we have in Jesus. The prophets who prophesied the grace that was to be yours searched diligently. They inquired carefully, inquiring what time or person the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated. When he predicted the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories, he goes on to say, even the angels desire to look into this. There are times in life you don't feel very significant and you don't feel very important. You feel marginalized. Now you've got to put yourself in the position of people that received this letter. Let's back up one more time and think about these people. They're out of their homes. They're kind of gathered around with 25 other believers in the living room. Uh, There's a woman in this house who is asking prayer for her wayward husband. 
There's a slave that asks prayer next. He says, pray for me. I can't bear under this load anymore. And then there's a son over in the corner and tears are streaming down his face because he's just been kicked out of his house for following Christ. There's a man there in the front of the church who just happens to be his first or second meeting, and he's afraid to tell his co-workers that he believes in Jesus. This is a group that is absolutely worn out by the world. The Roman culture is a tsunami against their faith. Their little church is so insignificant compared to the Roman institutions. They just walk outside, and there's a massive temple to Aphrodite right there, and nobody even knows that these people exist. And when they find out about this church, they're just going to be hostile towards these people. They feel completely marginalized, insignificant, like people don't care. And there are times they would trade places with anybody. And all of a sudden, one of the church leaders comes into the room with a little bit of buzz. He's got a scroll in his hand, but he can't read, see, because he's illiterate like most people in the church. So he calls upon the reader. They had an official reader in those churches. And the reader takes the scroll, he stands up, and he begins to read First Peter's from the apostle, and he reads this passage. Now let me just point out what he read. Number one, he talks about the privileged position that the people are in. First of all, he says, the salvation that you guys have the prophets wrestled with it. Remember when you were a kid? Well, this doesn't work for everyone. Remember before cable? <laughs> Remember you tried, you had two channels? You didn't know who Bert was and who Ernie and Dan Rather were because it was always fuzzy and the, you couldn't even make a face out. You would just find the channel, you know, and just leave it on that channel. That's what we're talking about here. A bunch of people standing around a TV trying to figure out what this person actually looks like. It's like a snowstorm in Paris on the screen. The prophets wrestled with who the Christ would be. Number two, Jesus preached it. He preached it through the prophets. The Spirit of Christ was working through those prophets. Number three, the Spirit revealed it to the people. It was revealed to them. They were not serving themselves but you. So Moses and Elijah and Malachi and Zephaniah, they knew that what they were saying was not for them. It was for you. And finally, the angels revel in it. Now get the picture. The angels desire to look into these things. You ever been in a professional ballpark? Aaron Judge in right field with a bunch of kids that have his number across their back? They are fighting to get up to that front row. They're looking over each other's shoulders like this just to get a peek at judge. That's what the angels do with this salvation you have. They are peering over a balcony watching your relationship with God. See, these people are sitting in the corner of the room thinking, I'm not very special. I'm insignificant. Nobody wants to be in my position. And Peter is saying, don't kid yourself. You are in the most remarkably privileged position you could possibly be. You are so privileged that the angels... The angels are envious at what's happening in your life. We know more about Jesus right now than Abraham, Moses, and Isaiah combined. Don't let your aching body, broken heart, social status take your eyes off the privilege you have. We are remarkably privileged people. You may be poor, but you're remarkably rich. You may suffer loss, but the suffering's temporary. You may not sense God right now, Oh, but he's with you. And you may feel marginalized, but you're incredibly privileged, all because of the resurrection of Jesus. Father, thank you for your grace. 
Thank you for caring about us, loving us. As we close together with song, we think about Christ, Christ alone, what the resurrection brings to us. Help us not to take the easy way out. Strengthen our steps to persevere all the way up the hill. We will stumble, but we will stumble forward. May we not take the easy way out, but persevere until we see you face to face. Christ's name, amen.